And uh, the eldest son was named Duryodhana, and they were collectively known as the Kauravas, sort of the bad guys in this epic story. Now, because Pandu, the reigning king, uh, could not have children, his wife Kunti invoked a boon that allowed her to conceive with any of the gods upon whom she called. So she called on Yama, the god of death and justice, and from their union, Yudhishthira, the eldest of the Pandava princes, was born with blessings to be judicious, truthful in thought and word and deed. She called on Vayu, god of the wind. And so Bhima was born, so strong that when he rolled out of his crib, he hit the earth and caused a minor earthquake. <laughs> she called on Indra, chief of the gods, and so Arjuna was born to be unmatched in wisdom and knowledge of weapons and destined to bring fame to his family. She called upon Pandu's second wife, Madri, called upon the twin gods known as the Aswins, and she gave birth to Nakula and Sahadev. And these five brothers are known as the Pandava princes. Pandu died young, so the eldest, Yudhisthir, was going to be the next king when he came of age. The sons of the older brother Dhritarashtra were furious. If their father had not been blind, they would be inheriting the throne. And so they hated the Pandava princes on that count, but also Duryodhana and his 99 Kaurava brothers were just plain nasty. Uh, for instance, the Pandavas were excellent students and made the Kauravas feel inferior. Uh, collectively, these young men had a martial arts guru named Drona or Dronacharya who tested all of the boys by mounting a wooden eagle on a tall pole and telling them to pierce the eye of the eagle. What do you see, he asked each of them. And each of the Kauravas says, I see you, I see the tree, I see the pole, I see the eagle. None of these answers particularly pleased their martial arts guru, Drona. But then Ar Arjuna answered, I see only the head of the eagle and nothing else. And when Drona asked him which part, Arjuna answered, I see only the eye. Naturally, Arjuna was Drona's prize student, and as they grew, the Kauravas turned even more bitter. And they started to plot. Their plan was to send the Pandavas on a vacation to this beautiful palace and have them killed and make it look like an accident. So the Pandavas' uncle Vidura, the religious brother who never married, uh, gets wind of the plot and tells the Pandava princess to take care, to be cautious. And he says, the Kauravas plan to set the palace on fire at night. So here's what Vidura does to help his nephews and their mother. He sends an excavation effort, expert to build a tunnel under the palace. And the expert arrives and works under cover of darkness. And when the fire finally does get started, the Pandavas and their uh, mother escape uh, to freedom, and they go to live in hiding in the forest. Now, in hiding, they have to beg for arms. Alms. Yeah, alms, yeah. And every day, they bring back to their mother, Kunti, whatever it is that they've found that day by way of food or provisions, and Kunti divides it among her five sons, right? Nice plan. At that time, they learn that there's a ceremony going on in which the princess Draupadi will choose her husband. 
A royal daughter in those days was allowed to choose her own husband, but usually there was a qualifying tournament. In this case, the various suitors had to bring, uh, had to string a magical bow that weighed many tons and then shoot arrows at a moving target. But only by looking at the target through a reflection on the moving, and the moving image on a pan of oil. <laughs> many tried and could not even lift the bow. Naturally, Arjuna stands up in disguise, goes over, strings the bow with ease, and hits the target again, again, and again. Jopati, of course, is enamored of this handsome and heroic young man. She slips the victory garland around his neck, and off they go to meet Arjuna's mother, Kunti. So Arjuna and the brothers return home with Jopati, and Bhima yells out from the doorway, Mother, come see what wonderful treasure we have brought home today. And Kunti, as she did every day, when her sons returned from seeking alms in town, yells back, okay, whatever it is, share it with your brothers. (laughs) Now, in the Vedic culture, a mother's command is never to be disobeyed. So after a lot of discussion about what is dharma and what is righteous action and what we do, what we cannot do, the Draupadi agrees that she will be wife to all five brothers. They worked it out. <laughs> they worked it out. It's another class, but they worked it out. Bottom line is they agreed, the brothers agreed, that during one year, one of them would be husband to Draupadi and the others would not even consider her in that way. They would be respectful of that relationship. So, so here's the thing about uh, the Mahabharata. There's always a backstory. Right? So the backstory here is that Draupadi, in her previous life, <laughs> had been married to a man who contracted leprosy. And so Draupadi found herself unhappily married, but still she stood by her man and cared for him without ever complaining. And predictably, in such epic tales, the leprous husband one day says, you're the best partner a fellow could ever want. Please know that I am neither diseased nor a bad person. I am a god. And I was testing you for a great role you are to play in the future. Now, I have to confess, I tried that line on a girl in college. <laughs> and it, 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 didn't, it didn't work. Um, so, so he says, so this God says to her, now you may ask of me anything that you, that you wish. And Draupadi says, well, you've been to me only one-fifth what a husband should be. <laughs> So I want to be loved as though I had five husbands. Okay, right. so sure enough, in her next life, she gets married to all five <coughs> Pandava brothers. So the moral is, be careful what you wish for, <laughs> especially in front of demigods disguised as leprous husband. Uh, so the arrangement was that she would live with one brother for a year, and then during that time, the other name of the life. Okay, so, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, the blind king Dhritarashtra is in a dilemma. He loves his sons, headed by Duryodhana, even though they have no hesitation doing abominable acts to garner power and wealth for themselves. But he also feels some obligation to his late brother uh, Pandu. So he learns that the Pandavas survived the burning palace, and he invites them to return home with their bride. They arrive, and Dhritarashtra says, I am dividing the kingdom. My sons will remain here in Hastinapur and have half the kingdom. I'm giving you the other half of the kingdom for yourselves. Well, the other half is mostly desert. But the Pandavas are happy since at least they now have a place they can call their own. And their their cousin Krishna steps forward and sends in this fellow 
a celestial architect, if you will, the, the Frank Gehry of the spiritual world. <laughs> and uh, Vishwakarma builds a magnificent city for them, and it's like Vegas, you know, it's a palace in a <laughs> desert. But, but much more stylish than that. And they called it Indra Prastha, after the god of heaven. So as part of the events at this time, Arjuna marries Krishna's sister, Subhadra. They have a son, Abhimanyu, who will be killed in the coming battle. And his son, Parikit, would be the last of the dynasty, the last of the great Vedic kings. So there's this close bond of family ties, right, between Krishna and Arjuna. And of course, Duryodhana is burning up with envy when he finds out about Indraprastha and this, this new kingdom that the Pandavas have. And he goes there and he's overwhelmed with the marble halls and the floors that shine like mirrors and he humiliates himself by mistaking a pool of water for a smooth marble floor and falls into the water. Now, Draupadi sees this and makes the mistake of laughing at him. Well, that's enough to push Duryodhana over the edge and he calls this gangster uncle he has named Shakuni... <laughs> which is a Sanskrit word meaning vulture, by the way. And he says, the success of these Pandava princes is burning my soul. And now this wife of theirs laps in my face. So Kuni says, I have a plan. Invite them to a game of dice. I'll play on your behalf. You leave the rest up to me. So meanwhile, back in Indraprastha, Yudhishthir, the eldest Pandava, and the one who should be crowned king, is visited by Vyasa. We talked about Vyasa yesterday, the compiler of the Vedic texts, the sage who codified this oral tradition in written form. Um, so Vyasa looks into the future with his visionary powers, and he tells Yudhishthira, the next 13 years will be very painful for you and your family. At the end, there will be an event that will wipe out the world as you know it, and you will be the instrument of that destruction. Well, Yudhishthira is thinking, that's not so great. And he says to Vyasa, I understand that nothing can be done to change destiny, but here's my vow. From this day, I will not utter one harsh word to anyone. I will offend no one. Maybe this behavior will mitigate somewhat the disaster that you have predicted. So it's just then that the invitation comes to play a game of dice with their sworn enemies, the Kauravas. So Yudhisthira senses something is amiss, but he's taken this vow to not offend anyone. And so it is against the warrior code to refuse such an invitation in any case, so he accepts the gambling challenge. So all five Pandavas and their wife Draupadi, off they go to Hastinapur, and they enter this magnificent crystal palace that Duryodhana has built to try and outdo the Pandava's palace in Indraprastha. And the main hall is filled with hundreds of guests. And the game begins. And Shakuni is unbeatable. He wins every throw of the trick dice. Naturally, they're trick. But Yudhishthira is unable to decline, continuing the game. And little by little, he gambles away everything they have. The royal treasury, the kingdom of Indraprastha, their army, and on and on and on. So the game continues, and next Yudhisthira begins to gamble away his own family, which with each toss of the fixed dice, he loses another of his brothers. Then Duryodhana outdoes himself in outrageous behavior by proposing that Yudhisthira wager their wife, Draupadi. Now the whole assembly moans at the shame of this idea. And Yudhishthira himself is in a kind of stupor. He can't, he can't stop himself and he agrees 
to wager Draupadi, and he loses. Duryodhana's younger brother, who's this real jerk named Dushasana, goes to get Draupadi in her quarters. Well, she can't believe her ears when she hears what's happened. She refuses to go with him, says, saying not only will she not agree to such folly, but she's not even properly dressed. She only has one piece of cloth on, but he drags her anyway into the assembly hall before all of this assembled aristocracy and soldiers and military and administrators. And Draupadi is standing there in the middle of these ferocious warriors. Her husband sit and do nothing but hang their heads in shame. And Draupadi is offering this brilliant rebuttal of having been sold down the river, noting that the other side never matched Yudhishthira's wager, that he was forced into a fixed game that he never asked to play, that the whole thing is rigged, and hearing all this, Vish, Vish, Vikarna, who is one of the youngest of the 100 brothers, says, you know, she's right. Yudhishthira never had the right to wager her. And I won't put up with what my eldest brother has done. She has not been won fairly. And the entire assembly breaks out in applause. That's how heinous the situation is. So even of the, some of the Kauravas themselves and the Aristos you know, and the audience see this as a kind of farce. But Duryodhana is a slave to his anger and his envy of the Pandavas. Okay. Duryodhana tells everyone to shut up and then orders the Pandavas to acknowledge they've lost everything and insist that they take off the royal armor and they order his brother Dushasana to strip Draupadi. Well, what happens next is one of the most celebrated events in the history of Indian culture. Dushasana grabs her sari and starts pulling. At first, Draupadi tries to hold on to her clothing, but what she can do, what can she do against these big warriors. And then she throws up her arms and prays, Krishna, I put myself in your hands. Sharanam Mama. <laughs> I give myself to you. She is completely absorbed in thoughts of Krishna and her eyes are deep shut in meditation. And as Dushasana is pulling at this sari, Krishna incarnates as an endless length of cloth. So here's Dushasana pulling and pulling and pulling, but it never ends. <laughs> and hours later, there's this huge <laughs> pile of cloth there in the middle of the assembly, and Draupadi is still dressed. Right? So everyone is, everyone is moved by this miracle, including the blind king Dhritarashtra, who says to her, dear lady, dear lady, clearly you are protected by God, and you may ask any favor that you wish. And immediately, Draupadi says, I want you to free my husbands from this accursed game. And the king agrees, and the Pandavas return with Draupadi to their capital city, Indraprastha. Meanwhile, Duryodhana cannot bear this humiliation, and he sends a messenger saying the Pandavas are invited back for a rematch. <laughs> now, Yudhisthira remembers the prediction of Vyasa and says, this is God's will. And so they return. And Shakuni announces, this time the stakes will be different. Whoever loses must go into exile for 12 years. And they must remain incognito for a 13th year. And if they are discovered during that year, then they must again go back to exile for another 12 years. Well, the predictable happens. Shakuni wins. Uh, <coughs> the Pandavas shed their royal robes. They put on the cloth of mendicants. And off they go for their 12 years of exile. The Pandavas faced one disaster after another, and Kunti elaborates their suffering to Krishna. Sometimes 
It seems we take to yoga because we are suffering and we want relief. Kunti's prayer is, bring it on. Because the more challenges that life throws my way, the more I am forced to remember you. So during these 12 years, they have numerous adventures. I don't have time to tell you all the adventures they get, get into, but I'll tell you one discussion. Draupadi at one point confronts Yudhishthira and says, how could you allow this to happen? You're so mellow, you never get angry, even when you should, right? Om Shanti. These monsters, they do not deserve your compassion. And Yudhishthira says, anger is never the solution to anything. Anger is the root of all destruction. And there can be no limit to forgiveness and tolerance and faith in God's wisdom and justice. Draupadi disagrees. She says, your inappropriate intolerance is what made this calamity happen. You would sooner lose your family than break your fanatical ideals. Frankly, right now, I don't think too highly of God or his wisdom or justice. This is... So Yudhisthira is shocked. He says, you're talking like an atheist. And she says, no, not an atheist, a realist. Those who believe in destiny and those who don't are equally foolish. The only worthwhile path is to act and do what is right. So, you know, the Gita is not just for believers. It's for thinkers. It's for thinkers and doers. Okay, Pandavas are in exile. They managed 12 years in exile. You can buy the action figures. <laughs> <laughs> Online, through Amazon. Um, so then they have to remain hidden, incognito, unrecognized for another full year, and they decide to seek work in a nearby kingdom ruled by one King Virata. And Yudhisthira says, he will present himself as a gambling companion to the king. Kel surprise. So Bhima says, I'm going to offer myself to work in the kitchen. I'll disguise myself as a chef. Another big surprise here. And I'll also show some feats of strength to keep the royal family entertained. Arjuna says he will wear a long braid and dress as a woman and teach dance and music to the women of the palace, which puts Bhima into a fit of hysterics. Think, you know, a big strong warrior like Arjuna. Think Russell Crowe in drag. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and Jopati says... Jopati says she will be a lady-in-waiting for the queen. So before they leave the forest, Arjuna ties their weapons in a sack and secures the sack in a tree. And off they go for a year in hiding. Just a few days before the end of the year in hiding, the Kauravas hear rumors of where they are, and they prepare to attack Virata's kingdom. King Virata had a son named Prince Uttara, a real coward and a real space cadet, and a braggart to boot, and when he hears the Kauravas are attacking, he makes this big show of putting on armor, and he's going to fight them off, and he says, all I need is a good chariot driver, and I'll blah, 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 blah. Arjuna sees this as a chance to finally settle the score with Duryodhana, so he volunteers to be Virata's chariot driver. He's going in this disguise by the name Brahanala, and as soon as they approach the Kaurava army, Virata sees how huge it is, and he collapses and says, Brihanala, slow down. Wait, we have to slow with Woody Allen. We have to think this through. I, you know, I, I didn't realize, you know, 
Let's talk about it. Anyway, Arjuna keeps driving. Just keeps driving. And Brahanala, didn't you hear me? Look, I'm not well. I can't fight. We've got to go back. This is exactly what happens to Arjuna a few days later when the battle of Kurukshetra begins. So, I haven't read this anywhere, but you might imagine that he had this reference in his mind of the cowardly prince, right, who he is now shepherding to battle. Um, well, first they, they go to the tree. Arjuna gets down the Pandava's weapons and he starts putting on his armor. And Uttar is looking at this transformation going on, you know, from the dance instructor, from the ladies in the kingdom. And, 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 and he can't take it anymore. He says, who the hell are you? And, and Arjuna reveals his identity. He says, I am Arjuna. Uttar is thinking, he says, Let's go get him! <laughs> He's just got Arjuna now on the chariot. I'm, we're not afraid. Yes, I'm drive. Arjuna uses a mystic weapon to put the entire Korova army to sleep. And he steals their armor and leaves them naked the way they were going to leave Draupadi. Uh-huh. Naked, right? So at this point, they wake up and they're furious and they are ready for war. And Krishna acts as a mediator. He goes to the kingdom and speaks to the Kauravas and says... If you return the Pandava's kingdom to them, this war can be avoided. Of course, they refuse. And then there's one final attempt at resolving their dispute without bloodshed. Forget half the kingdom, Krishna negotiates. Give half the kingdom, you keep it. Give the Pandavas one village each. I think we talked a little bit about this yesterday. As warriors, they have to have something to rule. And Duryodhana, you remember what Duryodhana's response was? Not even enough land in which to drive a pin. Well, Krishna goes even further. He reveals, as a final gesture, attempting to avoid conflict, he reveals his universal form, which he only does one more time, and that's to Arjuna, in the 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. And he says, look, I'm God, and I'm asking you to make peace. Okay? Here I am. I'm asking you. But they still refuse. That's how blind, literally, metaphorically blind, and at this point, war is inevitable. So, and here we have Arjuna on the attack. And there we have it, somewhere, 100,000 verses in 20 minutes. We did it. Yes! Okay. <laughs> so, <coughs> what are we to understand? First of all, we can understand the Bhagavad Gita is not a treatise or an advocating of violence or, or war. The story reveals that the Pandavas tried every possible way to avoid war, and war became inevitable. Right? So it also means events have a context and not to judge by appearances. Yes? When um, uh, Krishna presents himself, he never threatens during this whole mediation. He doesn't come back with, unless you do this, and yet he's the Yes. Yeah, you, you will not find anywhere in Bhagavad Gita any injunction that thou shalt or thou shalt not. This is all voluntary. This has, you, there's no such thing as love that doesn't come spontaneously and voluntarily from the heart. You can insist on a certain kind of behavior. You can mandate it. You can demand it. You can impose it. But that doesn't make for a strong culture. And at the first opportunity, this is classical dialectic, at the first opportunity, 
that kind of forced behavior will overturn the system and attempt to establish something new. Bhakti is not that kind of temporary revolution. It's, if you will, the final revolution. You know, it's the voluntary giving of oneself in love to divinity. That's what Krishna is asking for. Yeah. Yeah. So is Krishna a total laissez-faire deity? Is he an equal opportunity employer? He's not laissez-faire. Like, he just lets things happen. He does not direct. Quite the opposite. I mean, look look what an active role he took here. He, Krishna is not like deism, you know, this French philosophy that God, you know, wound up the universe like a clock and then he split. Right. You know, it's all kind of happening mechanically now. The whole theology of the Vedic text, or the Bhakti text in particular, is that God is a living, breathing, active being who is not only in his creation, but in your heart. He's with you at every moment. That's how much that love is there. We may turn away from him, but he never loses sight of us. And that reconnecting, that's what yoga means. It's a reconnecting uh, with God in the heart. That's what yoga means. Yoga is the reuniting of the soul with the supreme soul through love and devotion. So, according to this, where it's a dualistic understanding of we have our own personal (coughs) jivatma, our own soul. So, who created some souls as like lower and more tamas- tamasic, and some as more sapphic? I mean, why did the mm-hmm. Karavis, why were they rotten? Okay, well, this is a very good question, and it's apropos, Ted. So, <laughs> I'm going to answer it. With a story. Um, my teacher's secret weapon was prashadam. Prashadam means um, vegetarian foods that have been sanctified uh, by being offered before the deity of deities of Radha and Krishna, and then with prayer. And that sanctified food, prashadam, which literally means God's grace, is then distributed, and nothing tastes like prashadam. You can have the same two dishes, but one that's been offered with devotion and prepared with love, it'll taste so different. There's really nothing quite like it. And um, I remember sitting with him once and we were having a meal of prasadam. And we would take the opportunity of being with Prabhupada to ask questions, philosophical questions, whatever might be on our mind. And I asked him one time, essentially what you're pointing to, I said, Prabhupada, if everything in the spiritual world is so beautiful, why would a soul ever want to come here? What, this place is, is temporary, it's problematic, it's painful, it's, it's unfair. You know, there's so much that goes wrong here. Why would, why would anyone ever want to come here? And he said, <clears throat> looked at his, the prasadam that we had been served, and he said, you know, a wealthy person may eat sumptuously every day because there's a private kitchen and a chef. Someday that that wealthy person may go to the kitchen and say, you know, today for a change, could you make me some chip rice? Now, chip rice is what it sounds like. It's the broken grains of rice that fall to the bottom of the rice sack. And they're cheaper. It's a poor person's meal. So... 
a wealthy person doesn't have to have that. But we, we, we seek variety. We like change. At some point in cosmic history, going back so far that it's kind of impossible to calculate when it happened, some souls choose to move away from the natural paravyoma environment that they live in, not being condemned or cursed or exiled, but because we crave variety. So instead of living with God, the impulse comes, I wonder what it would like to live like God. At that moment, souls have the opportunity to exercise that curiosity, and that's the material world. When a soul enters the material world, you don't enter into those Thomasic regions of darkness. You start at the very highest realm, just slightly below the dividing line between spiritual and material universes. And those souls, when they first come into the material atmosphere, are still very much conscious of themselves as spiritual beings. But they are in bodies that eventually deteriorate. That ego has created a body. It's a form. Now, in these upper cosmic realms, lifespan is extremely long. But eventually, even on these upper planetary systems, if you will, these upper levels of reality, life eventually ends and the soul will transmigrate. At that point, we have choices at every moment. We can choose to, okay, I've had enough of this, and go back. Or we can say, you know what, I'm still curious. In which case, we again incarnate, again and again and again, and we end up in what is called the wheel of samsara. Now, I've parked my car. If I had left my car last night, you know, and taken the F train home or whatever... Are you impressed with how well I know your local transport? Um, I would have come back, it would have been dirty. Why? Just, just from sitting there. Dust, things flying up, whatever. You don't have to do anything. Just, just being in this material environment covers. Things get dirty here. Consciousness gets covered just the longer you are in the material atmosphere. To a point where now... We have completely forgotten our eternal, immortal, divine nature. It's there, but it's dormant. We're identifying with our external circumstances. This seems very real, doesn't it? This, 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 is, this is me. Isn't this me? I mean, look, I can touch it. I hear it talking. I see it doing all these crazy things. Up there. It's real. Why would I not believe that this is me? It's very convincing because we live so ensconced in the every moment of our daily life that that long forgotten identity has been suppressed very deep down in the subconscious. Under the right circumstances, memory returns. Again, I, I, I'm going to shift hats again. If you go to Holocaust studies and you work with survivors, there are certain parallel tracks between the spiritual path and suppressed traumatized memory. Survivors very often separate themselves out and they'll talk about their life, for example, in the camps or on a death march in the third person as though it were someone else. She did this and then she went there. 
in the right hands, if that conversation is being conducted by someone who's been properly trained in testimony, those disparate selves rejoin and someone will begin to relive those memories and speak in the first person. So under the right circumstances, suppressed memory can return. That's yoga. Are you saying, are you saying that we, and I don't know what need, we means for this question, well, once those souls that made the choice of coming into the material world, is that what we are right now? According to the philosophy of Bhagavad Gita and the, the Vedic text, that is, that is correct. That we are what are known as uh, uh, Nitya Badha souls. There are three kinds of souls. There's, uh, uh, well, two general, if you will. Uh, Nitya Siddha and Nitya Badha. Nitya Siddha means souls who have never known life in this world. They're, they're, they, they remain eternally liberated and they've never, they've never been here. Nitya Badha means souls who come into this world. And it's happened in such large time scales that it's like Nitya. It's almost like it's been forever. It's very difficult to calculate that point of origin where the soul came in contact with the material energy. Is that all people? In this world? Yes, all life forms. Anything that we say lives, where there is the presence of a jiva-atma, the spark of life, that spark of life is originally divine, perfect, eternal, fully self-aware, immortal, blissful, an eternal being. But now we've entered an environment where that self has been covered by these, they're, they're, they're called kleshas, these different sheaths, you know, that surround us. The, the physical body, which is made of Mahabhuta, five elements, earth, water, fire, air, and sky, or if you will, solids, liquids, gases, kinetic energy, and space. Right? And then you have the subtle self, the, the mind, the intellect, the intelligence, and the ego. Those eight general ingredients, those eight elements, are the sheaths covering the eternal soul. Yoga is to reawaken the consciousness so that that becomes the moving force and those sheaths become tools. <laughs> mm -hmm. The tools of your service and your enlightenment. Yes? Um, well, you said that we're original spiritual beings that when we come into this body we choose to come here or we were curious. But some of us that are drawn to yoga and find yoga, like us here, we have a somewhat of a memory, maybe, of that. And then last night, I was struck by what Roxanne said when she read that um, passage about people like just there is no happiness for them. They're just people who can't see that or don't aren't touched by yoga or touched by any kind of a spiritual life. Mm -hmm. Isn't that more? Yeah. Isn't that well, a, maybe a simple explanation of why some uh, Krishna would see some people have never been able to reach happiness? As a general principle, people who take quickly to a spiritual path are what are called in the Bhagavad Gita Yoga Brashta. Mm -hmm. Yoga Brashta means that you were practicing yoga in a previous life and you're picking up now from where you left off. So there's an attraction. To it. Um, others who may be in that uh, sorrowful state where there is no happiness. Um, can also take to the yoga path uh, 
either through what is known as the uh, sadhana practice um, or through grace. Sometimes, I mean, I asked my teacher one time, Prabhupada, if there are 10 people in a room and all 10 of them are really, you know, miserable souls with no particular spiritual interest, how is it that one of them becomes a devotee and the others don't? He looked at me and said, don't, don't try to find a formula for causeless mercy. It's causeless. Yeah. He says, ultimately, it's up to the mercy giver. You know, it's like uh, Merchant of Venice. The quality of mercy is not strained. It falleth like the gentle rain from heaven upon the earth below. You know, grace is something that you get even though you don't deserve it. So the great souls know that people are suffering and they don't even care to know that they're suffering. They're just on automatic pilot. You know, welcome to the matrix. You know, they're going along. They voluntarily come back into the world. Called a bodhisattva in Buddhism. Someone who postpones his or her own samadhi in order to come into the world and, and share grace with others. Yeah. Isn't it necessary for a soul to be in a body to be able to enact its dharma? What action can there be in only the spiritual plane? Well, if, if, if you understand the notion of Satchitananda Vigraha, that the soul is also a person, then there's always activity. The soul is by nature active. You're always active. You can't be inactive. You can, how long can you stay in Savasana? I mean, you know, really. You're always active. The, the body, though. Why do we come and have a body? Like, what's the difference? In to the enact the egocentric desires of wanting to acquire things for ourselves. Dharma is going on in that eternal realm, realm as well, but it's devoid of egotism. It doesn't have that. Remember, in, the, in, in that realm, people know they're eternal. So you don't have to get defensive about anything. You don't have to be looking out for number one all the time. If you know that nothing can hurt you, you live to serve. Right? You can know that even within this body. You don't have to wait to die. You don't have to go to some heaven. That consciousness can be cultivated even within a material body. That's what it, the term jivan mukta, someone who is liberated even while within the material form. Right? Yeah. Um, you said that uh, souls choose instead of to be with God, to be like I don't understand what the, how coming to this living space is like being like God. Well, we put ourselves in the center. You know, what, what is the question that we ask ourselves going through the events of our life? Well, it's kind of like, what's in it for me? And, you know, how, these are my plans and this is what I want to do. You know, and, you know, this is my family and this is my career. And these are my talents and my skills. These are my books. You know, it's focused here. You know, making yourself the most important thing in your life. Okay? Well, in the sense that 
you know, we didn't make this creation, but we enter into mentality that it's there for me. That the world is what? That's how the world exists for God. I'm like trying to understand how... Oh, oh, you mean, is God up there with some big ego on his shoulders thinking it's all about me? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's a material assumption. That, that's projecting our experience of what it's like to be an ego in this world and saying, well, God must be like that. It's um, understandable... But that's where, ideally, we would move on from our study of Bhagavad Gita to get a, a clearer perception of Krishna's nature, Krishna's character, his behavior, and learn the differences between material and spiritual. What is a material person? What is a spiritual person? What is material ego, if you will, and what is spiritual ego? There's also spiritual ego. Ego means self. Self is never destroyed. When, when, you, when, you're, when you hear in yoga class that you want to become egoless, it, it doesn't mean dissolving into nothingness. It means that the material ego abates so that your true spiritual self can emerge. That self is quite beautiful. It, uh, well, yeah, eventually, yes, 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 that's accurate. Eventually, we're all going to get frustrated trying to make ourselves the center of creation because nothing in this world is that good. You know? and, and no pleasure is so fulfilling that, you know, you don't want anything else anymore. Um, so eventually, yes, everyone goes back to Krishna. But you have all of eternity to do it in. So the reason to take up yoga practice is to save time. <laughs> you know? Let's, let's get it done. Let's get it done in this lifetime. Let's get it done now. You don't, you don't need to come back again. Because along with all of that experimenting, you have to go through the, the frailties of living in a material form. You know, all of the, 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 the sadnesses and, you know, the, the sufferings that go with being in a material form, that's an uncomfortable place to be. So, you know, that's not necessary. Now, again, this is not some salvationist idea that, you know, yoga is all, Krishna consciousness is all about, you know, me going back to Krishna, you know, and to hell with everybody else. That, that, that's not the idea. No, it's... it's a fuller awareness that this is also the kingdom of God. You don't have to die to get to the, it's now, it's here. And begin, and just, you're already a spiritual being. Behave that way. Live that way. And then you can experience the joy of that life. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take another two questions, then we'll break for a few minutes, okay? Yes. Who raised their hand? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm confused and I don't know if I will have to ask the question. But when you were describing when the soul makes that choice to come here, does that, and I don't know if I'm just making it too literal, 
but do we make a choice every time? Because my understanding of coming back each time was that there was still you're still working towards that. You're still trying. You're working towards. Yeah, you're incurring by actions that are devoid of that relationship, actions that are self-focused. You accept the good and bad consequences. There's a karmic effect to what, to what we do here. And according to, and by the way, by actions, I don't mean just physical actions. I also mean words, thoughts, all of that. The words, thoughts, and deeds of this life create our next life. This physical body that you're wearing right now is the byproduct of the consciousness you cultivated in a previous life. You invented this body. You created it with certain interests, certain talents, certain abilities by the actions, the karma of previous lives. And that continues, that cycle continues until you reach the point of engaging in bhakti. Because actions that are engaged with a feeling of devotion, not for oneself and the cultivation of one's own interests, but done selflessly in an unselfish frame of mind, do not incur karma. They are called akarmic. There's no karma to devotion. It's like uh, these, these fans. If you were to turn the switch off the fan would continue to spin for a while, but eventually it's going to stop. Right? So is the idea that the soul made that choice one time and came to you know, gain a body, mm -hmm. and then it's, you made that choice and that decision, and now you're in it, and now you're going to keep going through these cycles until finish or does it every time you die you make a choice again or no the destiny that's described in the Bhagavad Gita yam yam vapi smaram bhavam chajati ante kalevaram tam tam evaiti kontiya sadata bhava bhavata whatever consciousness is at the moment that the soul leaves the body to that destination the soul will attain so even if you've led a unspiritual life. There are examples, there are stories of individuals who at the last stage chanted or had that blessing of dying in a favorable circumstance and achieve liberation. But you don't want to gamble with that. <laughs> you want to start now. You want to be able to, you want to cultivate that because frankly we just don't know when death is going to come. So better to be prepared always, in which case then it doesn't matter. For one who's a, a devotee of God, for one who lives in that frame of loving Krishna and seeing everything that's happening in that context of devotion, death is irrelevant. It's not an issue. Because you're serving now, and you'll serve wherever you go next. What if you die on a bad day? Exactly. Uh -huh. You're having a bad hair day. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. You're trying to live a good life, but we're all imperfect. Well, things are not so quite. Yeah, they're not quite that mechanical. I mean, you know that. 
you know, there, the, thank goodness, you know, that there's, it's a benign and beneficent creation. It's not like, you weren't chanting when you died. <coughs> so yeah, I got you down. You know, it's not, that's, these are very churchianic, you know, ideas of heaven and hell and, you know. No, it, it, it's, there's a quality of consciousness that's cultivated throughout one's life. And quite frankly, you know, it's not that difficult to understand. I mean, how many of you have ever engaged in sports and seen your body physically change? That change of body is more or less a, a, a function of mental determination. You can change, if you can change your body in this life through mental focus, well, death is one other such change through mental focus. You will achieve it's not. Yeah. All right. Uh, one more question, then we're going to break. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am both confused and unsatisfied by Krishna's explanation of the gunas, and what you're talking about makes sense. But like, I read this and I just sort of picture a broken record because it sounds like someone who is predominantly tamasic is going to be sent back into the wounds of bewildered persons or lower species. And so it sounds as if there's just, like you didn't quite make it and now you're, you're getting sent back and you're not starting over, but you're going to be at a disadvantage. You know what I love? I love when you've got 700 verses and that's the one you pick. Why? <laughs> 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 um, No, it's not hypocritical. It, 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 it just requires some nuanced understanding. You know, you, you have to remember that these verses are dense. They're very, very con condensed, you know, thick. And, uh, and the language has to be unpacked. You know, every word in Sanskrit can be translated a dozen different ways. So what you have is my awkward best effort, right, at summarizing some awfully dense ideas into a brief overview. Right? So when you talk about dark regions, I mean, you know, again, that, that imagery triggers things for us that are unpleasant and distasteful and, and objectionable. Um, but we've all known dark moments in our life. You can't say you haven't known a dark place. We've all been to dark places. You know, we've been there. The question: How did how did I get here? You know, is it just because it's a it's a cruel, purposeless, bad joke life? You know, and 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 I got the short end of the stick, and therefore I'm in this dark place, or do I have some responsibility here somehow? That's not an unfair question. I don't I don't think that's enough. Okay, take a few, I, I know I haven't satisfied you, but that's good, because you'll ask more. Take a break, and then come back, and we'll yak it up some more. <coughs> okay. All right, so um, we're back into our second half of our little discussion here today. Um, Grab your handouts, if you would. And let's go over these so you know what it is that you've got here. 
Um, the first one is the Bhagavad Gita vocabulary. It's a two-sided <coughs> list that um, totally arbitrary on my part, but I thought people would appreciate having a, a short summary of some of the Sanskrit terms that you might want to know if you're going to be able to convey to your students something of the uh, philosophy and, and concepts and ideas in the Bhagavad Gita. So why don't we take one or two words here and let's unpack them a little bit. Anyone from either side of the sheet, if you see a word that you'd like to discuss a little bit more, raise your hand and, and mention the word. Yes. Dharma. Dharma. Okay, so it says here, religious principles and righteous behavior. <clears throat> the root of the word dharma is dr, D-H-R. Dr means the intrinsic quality of something, the quality that cannot be removed. What is the dharma of salt? It's to be salty. <laughs> if somebody sells you a bag of white, well, we won't get into that. But if, if it's not salty, it's not salt. Right? What is the dharma of fire? Heat and light, right? Okay. Uh, what is the dharma of water? Liquidity. Okay, now someone might say, yeah, but water can be evaporated. Water can be frozen. So it can change its form. But if you allow water to revert to its original state, it's liquid. Okay. The dharma of life, of living beings, is service. We're always serving in one capacity or another. We're active. The soul is by nature active. What you do with that service, there are different kinds of dharmas. For example, there's um, kula dharma, jati dharma, svadharma, uh, Sanatan Dharma, Vanashram Dharma, different kinds of Dharma, different kinds of services that humans render. Svadharma you might describe as um, vocational skills, your particular aptitudes or talents, how you serve with those natural tools that you have. There's family Dharma. We have obligations to our to the people who depend on us and who love us. We have a workplace dharma. The ultimate dharma, when the water comes back to its natural state, when life comes back to its natural state, is this union with God, yoga. The ultimate dharma is our union and service and love and exchange with God. That according to the bhakti philosophy. So dharma in this sense means when your life is righteously situated, when you are doing what you should be doing, what, when you are making the contribution to the world that you uniquely can make, what is that? What is your dharma? And all of the great epics are about finding dharma. If you, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and you know, all the great stories, the biblical tales... It's about dharma. It's about the search for even the great 
you know, epic films, Star Wars, and starts all about Dharma, about finding Dharma. Right? So. If you haven't yet found your, your place, your dharma, and you leave this world, well, that depends, doesn't it? I mean, you know, how far have you strayed from that dharma? <laughs> you know? uh, there's a, a promise that Krishna makes in the Gita. He says, you don't have to worry about it. If you're endeavoring sincerely to reach your dharma, then trayate mahato bayat. You will never be vanquished. I will be there for you. I am with you. you know. <laughs> yeah. Quite beautiful. Okay. Any uh, one more? One more vocabulary term? Yeah. Which one is that? Ahankara. Uh-huh. Uh, ahankara etian me binna prakati astada. Ahankara means identifying yourself as being your physical and, and mental and intellectual and cultural self. Mm-hmm. Yes, in other words, well, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, ahankara is the When you behave as though what matters most is your body and mind and your particular interests, that's a hankara. Um, is that what we were talking about right before? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Uh, the opposite of a hankara is uh, aham brahmasmi. I am Brahman, I am eternal spirit. So you, if you wanted to put it in, in that sense, you know, the polarization of identifying yourself as a spiritual being, a divine being, and living and acting in that way, as opposed to a hankara, which uh, the reason I, I like the way you said only is that you know, some people may have some intuition about themselves as spiritual beings, but they're, they don't live it. You know, they, they don't walk the talk. So are they devoid of any, you know, virtue of any? Of course not. You know, everyone has some <laughs> good qualities. But you can intellectually know you're not the body and still be living in ahankara. You know, just intellectually knowing, oh, I'm, I'm an eternal being. That can become another kind of ego. How many people have abused the idea of I am a divine being to take advantage of, of, of naive, innocent people. So it's, it's not an intellectual ex- exercise. When you live that place of I am not this body, that is aham brahmasmi. Right? Aham brahmasmi. A-H-A-M, aham, I am, brahmasmi, B-R-A-H-M-A, S-I, aham brahmas, uh, A-M-I, aham brahmasmi, I am Brahman, I am eternal spirit. Yeah. What does material ego... What, what it, material ego is the ego that dies with the body. Material ego is the ego that's built up of the things of this world. 
common definition of evil? It's the, if you will. It's, it's the psychological definition, the, the Vienna School definition mm-hmm. of, 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 of ego. And then the Aham Brahmasmi. Brahmasmi. Brahmasmi has an eternal existence. That is identifying oneself with one's non-material, non-temporal being. The part of you that does not die. Who you were before this life, who you will be after this body can no longer maintain consciousness. That is aham brahmasmi. I am that spark of God. Yeah. I have a hard time getting my, my head around, and I, and I forgot what page it's on or what section of the Gita it's in, but the overall essence is of the, um, the, the caste system in India that's referred to that you have your uh, a place that you are in or a uh, part of the caste. Mm-hmm. Again, kind of go back to my queries of yesterday, you know, and, you know not understanding a little bit of the masses and the mm-hmm. control and the sort of the prominent around that. But Dharma, does that relate to that? Okay. That's a good question. Now now what we're talking about is Varnashram Dharma or what okay. what can be awkwardly translated as the caste system. Because in the Gita they talk about that let me let me explain for you. I'll explain. There's an original concept such as what we find in the Bhagavad Gita and in the Puranas and other Sanskrit texts, which essentially says, if you will, it's a kind of primordial human rights convention. It says that everyone is entitled to work according to their particular skills for fair compensation and under adequate working conditions and they are entitled to the dignity of their career. That's Varnashram. That's what the original idea of the caste system was all about. That according to your abilities, you are entitled to work, to work happily, to work fairly, to be respected for what you're doing, to not be taken advantage of, and that if there is any transgression against your workplace rights, they will be redressed. That was the original idea. That's the perverted idea. Now that caste system that you're talking about, which is you're an outcast, I don't want to look at you, that came into being in the, uh, somewhere around the 1500s, 1600s when the bhakti culture fell into disrepute. When the notion of giving oneself over to God became sullied by a number of different influences, one of them being the Brahmins, who, for some legitimately reasons and some illegitimate reasons, felt it necessary to circle the wagons and protect their Brahminical or priesthood authority. It had a lot to do with the invasion of the Mohammedans and other outside influences. But caste Brahminhood came into being, which said, that to be a Brahmin, you have to be born a Brahmin. That if you don't have the lineage, you can't get the respect. Now, there's nothing in the Sanskrit Vedas to support that. And that's not what the Gita is saying. Not for one second. It's hard to understand that. that It's not there anywhere. 
nowhere does it say in the Sanskrit texts that your right to access God depends on your being born in a man's body or in a Brahmin family or any of that stuff. If you're born in the family of dentists, does that make you a good dentist? So why should being born into the family of Brahmins qualify you to be a Brahmin? It's purely a political manipulation. And it's, it's heinous. It's, 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 it's wrong. <laughs> it's cruel. Right. So Chaitanya in the 16th century appeared in 1486, born in Bengal, taught Kiba Bipra Kiba Nyasi Shudra Keinoi E Tattva Vettasei Guru. It doesn't matter if you're born a Brahmin, if you're born a, in a mercantile family, if you're an outcast, none of that matters. If you have devotion, you can become a guru. And if you are born a Brahmin and you have all of the rituals behind you but you don't know what devotion is and you can't respect other people for also being divine sparks of Krishna, you know Brahman. I knew JFK, Senator. You are no JFK. <laughs> okay, that's this handout. Uh, Aham Brahmasmi? That's a good one. Yeah. Um, when, when Prabhupada first came over from India, he was 70 years old, and he arrived here in 1965. And um, his early students in those days did their best to kind of organize speaking programs for him. And sometimes they took what they could get. So one time it was to an elementary school class. Look <laughs> at this very elderly, distinguished bhakti scholar. <laughs> You know, we were kind of wondering, what's he going to do here? So we sat down in front of the class, and he said, so who, who is an intelligent student here? You know, me, 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 me. All right, come forward. So, where is your leg? Mm, very good. Where is your arm? Very good. Where is your head? Where are you? <laughs> ah. <laughs> so in kind of simple way you're saying we don't say I hand we say my hand we don't say I head we say my head 
So all of these parts of the body are ours, but where are we? That's the soul. So this is also on an adult level a, a rather worthwhile meditation in Samkhya philosophy. Am I the object that I perceive? No, I am not that object. Am I the perception of that object? No, I have a perception of that object, but I am not the perception of that object. Am I the I with which I am able to have a perception of that object? No, the I is a tool that I engage for that experience. So tracing it back, back, back until you have some intuition of yourself as the witness of the events of your life, the person inside the body. So even for children, there are ways to introduce these things on a very simple, a simple level. It can be done. <laughs> At least that's how Prabhupada did. I always appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Going back to the idea of reincarnation, um, I don't know if it's any particular religion, but I didn't hear you quite talk about reincarnation in the way that I understand it very simply, which is a soul comes back time and time again to learn the lessons they haven't learned until they're done. And they right. become enlightened, or are they, yeah. then they don't have to come back right. into this earth. Yeah, I, I, mean, I have a problem with that. I really I do. I don't know if you're describing the incarnation in that way, and yeah. I don't know if you could talk more about the way you talk about it again or comment on You know, the idea that somehow we're, you know, we go through all the crap that we go through because we're supposed to learn something just doesn't register for me. It really doesn't. It's like, whatever. You know, it's like, you want to think, well, that's, that's fine. If that works for you, Zeig is into hate. But, you know, for me, the idea that God wants me to learn something appears awfully simplistic. Truth may be simple, but it's not simplistic. There's a very big difference. Sometimes people say, well, how can you believe in Krishna, you know, being God? It's this little blue boy who plays a flute. I mean, isn't that too simple? Well, let's talk about simple for a minute here, okay? I'll get back to your question. Trust me. What's simple? Give me what, what are some examples of something that's simple? Huh? A tree. Oatmeal. A tree. Oatmeal? Yeah. Yeah, oatmeal is simple. Unless you trick it out. Then. Um, oatmeal is simple, but tasty. Okay? You trace it back, and there's a whole magnificent structure to nature behind how those oats grew and were harvested. So behind that simple idea is something rather profound and quite poetic and beautiful. What else is simple? What's an example of something simple? Water. Water is simple, right? And yet without it, where would we be? (laughs) A haiku poem is simple. Try writing one. That's how simple it is. Huh? A walk in the park is very simple. But it can be an amazing inspiration. Um, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, is simple. He can make music with one note. Da, 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 da. 
revolutionized jazz. Um, what else is simple? Um, e equals mc squared. Very simple. Right, but behind that is the mystery of the cosmos. So simple is not simplistic. Simple is elegant. Something is some, simple is also very hard to achieve. So when I think of the concept of samsara or the idea of um, return, coming back again, um, the idea that it's because we have to learn something, to my mind, is not simple. That's simplistic. It's this highly sophisticated concept of um, creating from our own yearnings and urges and desires an entire world. We create entire worlds for ourselves based on certain assumptions. Yeah, these are called samskaras yeah. that uh, by offering prayers and rituals to a deceased family member, for example, you can ease their transition. Sure. Um, when George Harrison passed away, he had family and friends around him uh, who were chanting. And some of my buddies had brought him from the Krishna temple in Los Angeles garlands from the Radha Krishna deities, and there was incense burning, and they brought deities of Radha and Krishna. So George was looking at the form of the divinity. He was smelling the flowers that had been offered. He couldn't speak at that point, you know, but um, he could hear, and the chanting was going on. So that is considered an auspicious departure, that the soul is so immersed in that beautiful celestial spiritual environment that there's, there's no holding on to anything. Yeah, ultimately, the Bhagavad Gita is how to live your life, but it's also how to die. It's also teaching us how to die. You know? and there's a, a, a way to leave this world, you know, which is without attachment, without thinking, you know, I've I didn't get that done. I didn't finish this. I didn't do that. That's why the idea that, you know, it's some kind of lesson you got to learn really kind of just dumbs it down so far. Um, I, I remember talking at the Bayview Women's Correctional Facility in Manhattan. It's a medium security prison over on 12th Avenue in the 20s. And uh, after the talk, a woman came up to me and said, I killed my husband. Is my daughter going to have to suffer for my karma? 
whoa. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's a really good question. So we talked about it for a while, and I said, you know, how do you, do you mind me asking what happened? She said, I, I swear to you, I don't know. He, well, he came home from work one night, and I looked at him, and I went over to the night table by our bed where we kept a gun. I pulled out the gun, and I killed him. If you had said to me five minutes before I shot him that I was going to do that, I, was, I would have laughed in your face. So, you know, the, you know, the ways you know, of consciousness are, are extraordinary. I think her question is quite revealing, though. You know, her concern was less for herself than for her daughter. Yeah. So that, that spoke to her character, yeah. Yes, um, you read. religious Orthodox Jewish background. So I'm just wondering in terms of what you're offering, um, for lack of a better word, in terms of worshiping Krishna, how that could be done um, and be a member or an active participant in another religion. Yeah. Um, I go to, look, on, on the holy days, I go to Temple Sinai in Roslyn. Michael White, our rabbi, is one of my best friends. Um <clears throat> They've totally tricked out services these days. We've got, you know, drums and guitars and a bass. <laughs> you know, it's like, hoo-ha! You know, it's like, reform goes Broadway now. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> but, you know, if you're Orthodox, you know, just go to BJ or someplace. Yeah, great music, you know. Nice, nice, you know, rhythms over there, too. Um, I, I guess the answer is that for myself, I... I don't mush it all together. You know, my religion is Judaism, and I love Judaism. You know, I don't feel any either conflict of interest or, or, or need to mix it all up. You know, Judaism provides so much that nourishes me. Why, why, why tamper with that? My yoga, my bhakti, my Krishna consciousness nurtures another side of me, a more metaphysical side, if you will. There's an ontological dimension of my study and my meditation that I find fulfilled by the Bhagavad Gita. Now, it doesn't stop me from reading Torah or you know, studying the commentaries or you know, appreciating the knowledge, you know, and... You know, that was one of the things that I loved about George Harrison. He managed that at a time when nobody got this, that you can actually have your specific path and also appreciate the diversity of expressions of love for God. I mean, he got that very, very early on. You know, my sweet Lord, you know, Hare Krishna, Hallelujah. I mean, that, it was intentional in his part. He wanted to show that there's many different expressions are not conflicting. They're complementary. So, so Krishna? Krishna is the Sanskrit name for the Supreme Being. God in personal form. Radha is the equivalent of Shekhinah, the divinity, the goddess. You can find the equivalents there. Jesus Christ. In Christianity, you'll find more in the mystic 
levels of Christianity. You will also find that marriage with God that takes place. You know, particularly if you go, let's say, to the Song of Solomon, you know, Song of Songs, that same Madhurya Rasa, Shingara Rasa is, is there. Yeah, it's there in Sufism. Go to the poems of Rumi. You'll find that same sense of the, you know, an erotic, ecstatic love for God. The parallels are there. I'm obfuscating a little bit. Yeah, you're a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it this way, you know. But it works as, for you. As far, as far as the Orthodox are concerned, I'm a Mishumid, right? It's that simple. Let's call it what it is, right? I'm a fallen Jew. As far as they're concerned, call it what it is, right? Um, and, okay, that's fine. If that's how they want to you know, brand me, that's their business. You know, I, don't, I don't see it that way myself. Yeah, yeah well, because, of course, for Orthodox Judaism, there's no personification of God. God has no body, that's one of the 13 tenets that Jews say every day. There's still attributes of the Father. Attributes, but no physical presence. Mm-hmm. No maleness, no femaleness. No. So everything other than that is okay you know, for me. Mm-hmm. That, <laughs> no, really, no, because, other than Krishna, it's all okay, right? Well, the, the fact that Krishna <laughs> is a personal person who grew up with Arjuna, he's blue. You know, all of a no, you look. You got to get over the okay, the imagery. No, you really got to get over the imagery. No, but also, you grow up with him, and all of a sudden, Arjuna goes, "Wow, you really are Krishna." Vyasa said it, and Narada said it. Something was the mm-hmm. other two people, Narada and Vyasa, and he goes, "Wow, they were right. You are Krishna." Right. Look, you you know, in the high holy days, where uh, Rabbi Akiva and the others, they're so immersed that the students got to come and say, "Rabbi, please stop already. It's time for the morning services." Right? Okay. Is that not Bhagavad Gita? They're so immersed in this discussion of, of divine subjects that they completely forget, wait, there's a battle going on that we've got to attend to. I think we better go. I, I don't see, you know, the, the equivalents are so breathtaking that to nitpick the parts that are different, to my mind, seems utterly a waste of time. You know, I, 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 I don't see why some other tradition because the, the term happens to be Krishna, which literally translates as the all-beautiful. Is that not a definition of Adonai? The all-beautiful one? I mean, I don't get it myself. No, you're, no so, I agree with you. Know. I wrote this, this one line down last night, and I wanted to ask if you would say this is the core of it, that the deepest eternal bliss is love expressed. The deepest eternal bliss is love expressed. Well, that's certainly heading in the right direction. I, I think it's lacking a little tooth. You know, it's lacking some specificity there. I mean, love of what? You know, love of who? You know, I mean, there's... Where I get a little antsy is when people start hedging their bets about this stuff because they're, you know, a little too... Precious, a little twee, you know, about, well, if it's all, if it's Krishna, then it can't be Buddha. If it's Krishna, it can't be Yahweh. If it's Krishna, it can't be Jesus, you know. 
as though these things were somehow mutually exclusive and you got to pick which country club you're going to sign up with, you know. And, and so we kind of dance around, you know, the difficult issues as though, yeah, you don't want to go there because you don't want to upset anybody. I say, screw that. You know, let, let's get into it. Let's talk about this stuff. And I swear to you, there are some Jews I know, as there are some Buddhists I know, which is a non-theistic tradition, right, who are so deeply in love with God that someday I pray I will have one iota of their love for God. They don't know the first thing about Krishna and Vrindavan and the gopis or whatever. But they've got it down so well and that some of my friends who, you know, you know they got the whole chazarai with the beads and the whole thing. <laughs> they can't, they can't ap- approach the hem of the skirt of these people. So who's the better devotee here? Who's the better devotee? It's like the Buddhists say that spirituality is the sky and any particular religion is looking at a straw up at the sky. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing a truth, but, it's, but spirituality is much vaster than anyone. Particular. I, I like what, um, what was his name? It was the, at the time he was the chief rabbi of the, Jonathan Katz. I think it was his name, Jonathan Katz. Uh, I interviewed him at the UN and I said, how do you reconcile religions? And he said, you know, Judaism is the language with which God speaks to the Jewish people. You know, Islam is the language with which God speaks to the people of Islam. And if you understand the language, you know the message is the same. I kind of appreciated that. Now, that said... Not for one moment would I ever deny the unique gifts of, let us say, you know, the Satmar community. The ultra-Orthodox have things to teach us about, for example, spiritual heroism that are breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking. Just as the Bhakti tradition has things to teach us about the expression of rasa, the different flavors of love for God, that is unparalleled in the world. So why should we not appreciate all these many gifts? At least for me, that's, that's what makes the most sense for me. Let's, let's just go on. I want to make sure we get through. Um... Oh, this was just for fun. Take the Gita health tips. <laughs> I figured, all right, there's so much in the Bhagavad Gita just as a, almost as a, as a joke, I, I, I sat down and said, okay, let's see what the Gita has to say about health. And I just went through and picked a bunch of verses, right? This is fantastic. Sixth chapter, one cannot be a yogi who eats too much or too little, sleeps too much or too little. That's a typo. should be T-O-O. Um, watch what you eat, people. You certainly don't need a big meal late at night. You don't need that. You're just going to have nightmares and get up feeling all sluggish and put on weight. Uh, if you go to sleep early, the, the, the village wisdom is one hour of sleep before midnight is worth two hours of sleep after midnight. So if you go to sleep early, which means what? You've got to cut back on the partying people, right? <laughs> we make our choices. We make our choices, you know? Watch out for the company you keep. You want to lead a spiritual life? Rethink that Rolodex, you know? Rethink your Facebook friends. Who are these people, really? 
And why, why are they worth so much of my time? I mean, let's get real. Right? You know? that, that's something else. That, the, the, your Jaya thing, that TT, whatever that is, that's, that's, a nice, that's a nice group. Honored to be a part of that group. Regulate eating, sleeping, work, and play. Don't, don't obsess over your careers. What is that? You know, don't give in to the pressures of this culture. This culture will eat you alive. Unfortunately, we live in an environment that does not reward simplicity. It does not reward deep thought. It does not reward reflection. It does not reward divesting yourself. It's acquisitional. It's consumer. It is not, it's also not a culture that necessarily rewards cooking your own meal. But food is as much a, spiritual, a part of your spiritual life as your chanting and your meditation and your yoga classes. So all of it's important. Right? Anyway, that was, that was for fun. Um, what else have we got here? Okay, this prayer by Tukaram I thought was important following up our discussion yesterday at the, about the difference between Shankarite Advaita philosophy and the Vyasa school of bhakti. Yeah? The difference being essentially that you are already spiritual. You're, you are already one with Brahman. You don't have to work to earn that. What we have to work at is repairing a broken heart. Our heart's been broken so many times that we distrust love. We really do. We have commitment issues. <laughs> yeah. Why? Because I've, I've tried, I've given my heart so many times before, and every time it's been broken. Someone just trounced on it. You know? All of the problems of life are due to other people. That's why I'm one with everything. Because <laughs> I no longer have to assume any responsibility <laughs> for being a, just everything. Well, you know, it's a little naive. You're already a spiritual being. Now work on allowing your spiritual personhood to emerge. That's critically important. Don't deny your individuality that you're a person. That's what makes you beautiful. You know? Is that you have your own quirks and idiosyncrasies, you know, that you're unique. Nobody else is like you. You know, that, that's a very beautiful thing. So this poem by Tukaram, Pray No More for Oneness, it says, Can water quaff itself? Can trees taste of the fruit they bear? Who, who has a good reading voice? Who, who has some thespianic tendencies? Here? Who's sag? Who's sag? Yeah, all right, go for it. You're up. Pray no more for oneness. Can water quaff itself? Can trees taste of the fruit they bear? He who worships God must stand distinct from him. So only shall he know the joyful love of God. For if he says that God and he are one, that joy, that love shall vanish instantly away. 
Pray no more for utter oneness with God. Where is the beauty if jewel and setting were one? The heat and the shade are two. If not, where is the comfort of shade? Mother and child are two. If not, where is their love? When, after being sundered, they meet, what joy they feel, the mother and child. Where is that joy if the two were one? Pray then no more for utter oneness with God. And the actor goes to... <laughs> that was lovely. Tukaram was a bhakti poet from South India who um, was uh, from a mercantile family, if I remember correctly. His wife died when he was quite, quite young, and he uh, gave himself over to devotion. Yeah, there are equivalents in the bhakti texts. So, so these souls that choose to come down and they're on this high sattvic level, why don't they realize, oh, I've got to do yoga and go up again? What causes them to spin down and down and down? And once, if they are really far down, like, you know, they're born into a donkey family or something, what is that spark that turns it around and starts letting them come up again? Why do you continue with bad habits? We're habituated. So even a brilliant who's really at the top, when they're first coming down, those bad habits are snaring them. How many brilliant people you know are without bad habits? Look, don't underestimate how deep our conditioning runs here. We've been in this world a long, long time. A long time. I just love it when people come up to me and say, Yogeshwar, I've been chanting Hare Krishna now for six months. Yeah, and and I'm I I, I still I'm still I'm still drinking wine. You know, really? What else? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so what turns around if somebody is well, sometimes, you know, you hit rock bottom and there's no place to go but up, you know. I'm down so far it's beginning to look like up to me. You know, so, you know when, when you hit, Joe, Joe Campbell called it the belly of the whale, right? In, in, in the monomyth model, Joseph Campbell called it the belly of the whale, the point of no return. You reach a place in your life where you realize this is really it. There's no going back now. There's just no going back. You know, and you plug in whatever fits for you. You know, like, he's out of here. You know, or I just can't go on doing this any longer. I mean, whatever it is. You shoot your husband. Something happens. You reach some point where either you die 
or you transform. That's the belly of the whale. It's like Jonah, you know, reached a point. He ran from God for so long until finally he's in the belly of a whale. So either he was going to die there or he was going to transform and come back and do what God had asked him. So maybe that woman's dharma was to kill her husband because he was ready to go. Well, let's, you don't want to do that. You don't, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. That's like, that's like Charles Manson when, when the no, press... I'm kidding, though. I'm the, saying that, that she's playing that role. I understand. She's there. You know, but that, 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 uh, it's not funny. But when, when the press asked Charles Manson, why did you send your students to kill all those nurses? He said, because I've been reading the Bhagavad Gita. And in the Bhagavad Gita, it says that even slaying, one does not slain because, slay because the soul is eternal. Second chapter, there's a verse like this. Najayate mri vayat even slaying the soul is not slain. Right? That's not a directive to go and kill. Right? I, I didn't mean that. No, I know. I know you didn't. But my point is that you can justify anything by quoting scripture. You know, that's also Shakespeare. You know, the devil quotes scripture to his purpose. Right? You don't, that's, uh, technically, according to the Gita, that is true. You do not have to remain in a human form. So how does a cockroach gain sattva? Very slowly. <laughs> because then you go back up that evolutionary scale. The evolutionary scale takes place. There's, there, there's accommodation to evolutionary theory in the Sanskrit texts. But it's an, an evolution of consciousness, not an evolution of bodies. It's not that a cockroach, cockroach transforms into a chipmunk, transforms into a, you know, a polar bear. Those various species exist to accommodate various levels of evolved consciousness. And once you come below the human form, the trajectory is again back up that evolutionary scale. And for animals, there's no karma. They're, they're following their instinctive nature, and there's no karma. So that you, it's what? It's a karmic, that's word. A karmic? A, a karmic, a karmic. It, it, is, it is outside the sphere of karma. Animal, if, when a tiger kills, there's no karmic effect to that. Has to eat. In fact, we have something to learn there. Tigers don't kill unless they have to eat, you know, unlike us. So that evolutionary process takes place. It's the human form, which is, if you will, the, the escape clause. It's a point where consciousness has evolved sufficiently that you can turn awareness within. Now, let me not be so cavalier as to say that animals cannot do that. I would never claim that. I've met animals who are a lot more evolved than some people I know. And I mean that truly. I'm, I mean that sincerely. I, you know, especially down at the Tiger's Preserve. There are some animals there you will not believe. The elephant bubbles is it's it's like uh, interacting with a person utterly in every imaginable way language body signals humor bubbles has come up with games that she plays with kids she lets kids swim next to her in the stream there's a there's a stream there by the tiger's preserve 
and uh, the kids swim up, and they're, it's, it's drishya. You know, they're staring into her eyes. And she'll put her trunk between her legs and whoop, lift them up and put them on the back of her head, and they can dive into the stream. And that's a game that she totally invented on her own. And she is utterly peaceful and, and, and uh, harmless. You know? And she I mean, it's just doesn't care. So, yes, animals can also attain enlightenment. But generally, for most of us, it's when we achieve a human form that we can then begin our yoga practice and Yoga hasn't been popular in, in the West for since, like you were just saying, you were a guru who came here in, in 75? 65. 65. So if, if it wasn't popular, then people weren't doing it. So nobody, <coughs> is it that in the Western part of the world people weren't evolving? Uh, spiritually compared to places where yoga was being practiced? There are contemplative practices that are indigenous to the West that go back thousands upon thousands of years. It may not follow the Patanjali Yoga Sutra particulars, but there's contemplative meditative practices in Christianity and Judaism. There are Jewish yogis. Very highly evolved beings. They don't call it yoga, but the 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 control of life airs and the elevation of consciousness and the stimulating of the various chakras, it's all the same. The language, you know, the terminology may differ, but it's also there in Western Western cultures, Western traditions. have a brother Lawrence of Alsace who lived in a monastery in Paris in the 1400s for he had been a soldier in his teens and then he came out of war and started reading books about the life of Jesus and entered a monastery in Paris and after about 20 years of being the cook for this monastery and he's well known for having said that when I'm in the kitchen and the hustle and bustle is going on, people are asking me for this and that. Um, I feel as inspired as I do when I'm in the inner sanctum of, of the, the chapel, praying before the altar. You know, he, he had that sense of you know, spirituality being everywhere. He walked out of the monastery one day after these many, many years of contemplative life and saw a tree and fainted. It finally got through to him. An everyday object that he had seen since childhood, but now he was prepared through those years of contemplation and meditation. And the beauty and the perfection of a tree made him swoon. He woke up about six hours later. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Now this is um, <laughs> I'm, I'm from some reason I'm reminded of, of a student I had in, in a course at Hofstra. You know, we we hear about these things and we tend to simplify them, oversimplify them. You know, as though oh, I get that, I totally understand. <laughs> 
we were, we were reading Hamlet, and this, you know, lo lovely young man, but a little on the simple side himself. His hand shot up. He said, oh, Professor Green, I so get Hamlet. <laughs> I mean, his existential dilemma is so much where I'm at in my, I mean, I don't know what I want to major in either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is very profound stuff we're dealing with here. You know, so if it takes a little while, be patient. You know, with your spiritual practice. <laughs> I go to part two where I have sure. this yeah. So now that yoga is, is prevalent, it's very popular. Is that mean? Is a that mean there's, there's more spirituality <coughs> going on, or is it... How many yoga studios have you been to? No, that, that's what I, I'm saying. That's not... Look, you know what? Let me not be snide about it. it it's all good. It's all good. Um, <clears throat> people come to spiritual life from all kinds of backgrounds. You know, I mean, I've got some students in Jiva Mukti. They started at Bikram. Whatever. You know, I... I'm not putting anything down. At this point, whatever works for you, that's good. I have my problems with certain things, but that doesn't make me right. And, and uh, is it a good thing that yoga is proliferating? Sure, it's a good thing. Do I believe that yoga is being taught properly? Well, certainly not everywhere. Honestly, I think there's a lot of bad yoga out there. You know, so thank goodness for you know, Jaya Yoga. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to come back to something you said um, yesterday. You were talking about spiritual knowledge as, um, as realized knowledge. And I, you spoke of a teacher who said, um, some people think, I can do this, and I can still do that. But if you're thinking that... Just stay there and do that. Mm -hmm. um, can you say more about that and about how to take what we're talking about here and live in, in New York City where um, people live in it, like, you know, like, jobs where it's really hard? To yeah, that's like one of the three questions that I'm always worried if someone's going to ask. <laughs> okay, because the only way I can answer you is by talking about my own life. All right, so I will. Uh, I lived in ashrams for 13 years. And I was a lost child of the 60s, born in 1950, went off to school in the Sorbonne to study comparative literature, ended up in London in December of 1969. Because I played organ in a rock band, I ended up at Apple Studios recording with George Harrison. Uh, George was friends with the Krishna devotees. I figured, okay, if I stay with these people, I get God and the Beatles. I'm in. So I stayed at the temple and lived in ashrams for 13 years. After 13 years, you know, there were parts of me that had just been undeveloped. You know, certainly my libido had taken a back shelf for a long time. And, you know, that was kind of annoying. <laughs> and I wanted to, you know, live what I had been studying in a bigger Arena. I also had some differences, frankly, with the way things were being administered within the institution. So, like, enough was enough. So I came back and, you know, kind of eventually adjusted. That was October 28, 1982. 
So you do the math. But but 30 years ago, I came out of living in ashrams. And along the way, (laughs) you know, you experiment. You know, you figure out. You know, because the big question when you when you leave a spiritual that kind of an intense spiritual period of your life is, you know, am I a demon now? You know, (laughs) am I no longer spiritual? You know, if I if I've moved away from that, does that mean like, you know, I mean the remorse and the humiliation and, and that sense of self-recrimination is intense. You, know, you, you cry a lot of tears, you know. And, and um, I say, well, I guess I'm not going to know unless I try it, you know. So you go off this way and you go off that way. And, you know, fortunately for me, it was like, eh, that's boring. You know, ugh. New York Bachelor, Ugh. you know. And so I think what Prabhupada meant when he said, if you're thinking, I'll do this, but I'll also do that, then just go do that. Don't do this. Is You can't really get to the end of a spiritual path unless you commit to it. If you don't feel it, don't force it, people. I mean, force does not work. You know, don't. Don't just start chanting on those. By the way, if you, if you, wanna, if you want those bees, they're $5. If you don't, just put them back here at the end of the uh, But don't force it. You know, if you're not feeling it, you know, if it's not right for you, you know, why do it? If you wanted to experiment and see if it feels right, well, that's fine. That's fine. But once you've made a decision, if you're going to commit to something, stick with it. It's not going to happen overnight. You know, it's not. You have to give yourself the opportunity of seeing what's at the end of that road. Otherwise, how are you going to ever know? So whatever you can do, do that every day. If the only thing you can do is five minutes of meditation, do that. But do it every day. Do it regularly. Do it steady. Now for me, you know, the chanting is my, that's my bliss. You know? So that's where I'm at. You'll find me there in the morning. You know, and it gets to be a very, very emotional thing for me, that chanting. Very emotional thing. Uh, but, you know, am I tempted by the dark side? Yeah, sure. You know, it's, it's New York, you know. Yeah, I feel like, why do I sound like Christopher Walken? Wow, I mean, here in New York. Yeah. You know, just be careful. Put it that way. Don't be cavalier about it. That, that, maybe that's the thing. If you're going to stray from the path, you know, from the straight and narrow, know you're doing it. Don't rationalize it away. Just accept, okay, today I'm off schedule. And then get back on schedule. Okay? Is that okay? Is that all right? I think we can do that. All right. Um, you talked about Kali Yuga, but I don't know very much about the four cosmic ages, but in your opinion, do you find that the planet is moving in the right direction spiritually, or are we going backwards? Uh, both at the same time. According to the Puranas, the Srimad Bhagavad Purana in particular, we are living in a mini golden age within Kali Yuga, so that there's a, 
an ascension of spiritual awareness that's going on right now. And it, it's due, the prediction, these are, these are predictive texts, the Puranas. The, the prediction is it'll last for about 5,000 years. Now we're only a few hundred years into this upward cycle within Kali Yuga. So there's a Satya or golden age occurring now which will continue to grow. After that peak 5,000 years in the future, it will again diminish over another 5,000 year period so that by the time Kali Yuga is further progressed, it's going to get really rocky. It's going to get really bad. Um, we're at a point where we can see, you know, there's an advantage to our particular place here in this age and culture. We can viscerally see hellish and heavenly conditions side by side. The demigods, according to the Puranas, want to take birth on earth now because the conditions are so favorable to making rapid spiritual progress. Because you can viscerally see it. There are divine worlds, heavenly worlds, where conditions are so idenic. Where's the incentive? You know, it's like if you're living on the big island. You know, where's the incentive? You know? Here, you, you see it all the time. And there's an incentive to really double down in your spiritual practice. So we're in a particularly unique place where the bad stuff is happening, and yet also there's this growing of spiritual spiritual awareness going on at the same time. I got to tell you something. You guys, you. You. You've got a gift. I, I enjoy this tremendously. I mean, this is exciting. It's stimulating. I love your questions and your comments. The emails, ah. <laughs> Emails are great too, I'm only kidding. Um, I would gladly, you know, come back and talk with you more. Uh, you're all welcome, most welcome to Jiva Mukti every Tuesday night at 8 o'clock. We do something like this, you know, it's a little bit more of a discussion going back and forth. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'll stick around a little bit, so while I'm packing, if anyone has some further questions that you'd like to ask, please do. Oh, I know what uh, I was asked. Um, uh, <laughs> one of my students, bless his heart, uh, decided that he was going to record all of the presentations up at Jiva Mukti. So there's something like 40 or 50 classes available as a download on iTunes. If you go to Gita Wisdom Teachings or something like that, uh, you'll see there's a whole section there. I apologize, that seems a little self-serving, and it is, but there, you know, there it is. Um, and, and, okay, so, thank you. Do have an asana practice? Do I have an asana practice? Um, I go to classes at Jiva Mukti, and a place around the corner from Jiva Mukti um, called, uh, uh, I'm going to forget the name now. It's a fairly new studio, not Yoga Shala. But there's a, it's, it's taught by a, a, a young woman who graduated or who got her certification at Jiva Mukti. 
Um, I've also gone to classes at Yoga Nanda in Garden City, also a relatively new studio, but it's out by where I live on Long Island. Um, when I get up in the morning, I do my chanting, and then I do a sun salutation. I do some basic, you know, positions. And um, my big thing right now is trying to connect asana with bhakti. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's a it's the third part of this Isopanishad series. Next, next Saturday, uh, it's Isopanishad and Yoga. Where um, I did some research into this, that the 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 asanas connect with bhakti. Uh, that's there. You have to look for it, but it's there in the Yoga Sutras. It's there in some of the other yoga texts. What? Why these physical expressions? What's what's going on there? There's a connection to the heart. And you know if you do the asanas that deal with the heart, you find sometimes you find yourself crying. Well, why? <laughs> What's going on? So I, I'm looking at that more and more. Yeah? I just want to say thank you, and um, we're trying to gather a group. It seems like there's a bunch of people that are interested in doing the eight-week course. Hmm. And maybe you'll come back and teach us that at some point. Um, that sounds like a good fun. Mm -hmm. um, I want to tell the teacher trainers to please bring light on yoga to class tomorrow. Um, and I wanted to say that it's Ramit's birthday today. <laughs> <laughs>